Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, today I'm really excited for you to meet Dr. Maria Pantelich. She is a lecturer in public health at the Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Before that, she was a senior advisor for research and evaluation at the International HIV and AIDS Alliance, which is now Frontline AIDS, a global partnership of civil society organizations that work together to mobilize communities against HIV. She's also an associate member of the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at Oxford University, a member for the International Scientific Advisory Board for the AIDS Impact Conference, and a whole bunch of other things that I'm going to post a link to on the bio. Welcome, Maria. How are you? Hi, I'm great. I'm really happy to hear you and be speaking to you and be talking about stigma today. I'm so excited too. And so I believe, I'm trying to remember if this was the first and the last time I saw you. And we had just, before we started this podcast, we're mentioning, we saw each other right before sort of everything changed in the world with COVID-19. Was the first time I met you in Brighton? So it, it was for you, but it wasn't for me because I remember meeting you, I think, I think I was on a panel with you at an AIDS conference a very long time ago, but I I knew who you were (laughs) and you didn't know who I was. I think I was still doing my PhD. I'm sure I knew who you were. I think, oh, you're so sweet. I think I knew who you were, but I just forget things now. So in Amsterdam, was it in Amsterdam? No, I think this one was like, I think it was in DC or Australia. Yeah. Oh, look at us name dropping all the great, the great places for the international AIDS conferences. <laughs> I've, yeah. missed, uh, I've missed seeing everybody there this past year. So I, I did a, a long introduction. What is your elevator pitch? If I was in an elevator when we're all vaccinated or before COVID-19, you have a couple of floors. How do you describe what you do? Right. So, so I work on HIV, but I'm not a virologist. I don't work on the virus itself. So I work on all the other stuff that make living with HIV difficult or easy nowadays. So we have all the tools and medications in place for people living with HIV to live a long, healthy life. But there are a lot of other things like judgment that they experience and profound shame and discrimination, which stands in the way of people living full and happy lives a lot of the time. So I try to understand that better and understand ways in which we can improve that. Amazing, which is why we're so excited to have you on our podcast today. 
I want to ask you right now, are you in Brighton right now? Yes. Okay. I'm going to show up in my time machine to Brighton, which is such a, a nice place. It's so beautiful. I'm going to show up in my time machine and there's going to be separate rooms so we can physically distance and it's an invisible time machine. So we're allowed to be moving around in the time machine. And I'm going to say, take me back to the time and place where you started thinking, oh, I, sh I should, or I want, or I think it's important that I do this work on stigma. Tell me where we'd go in this time machine. Where would you take me? When would it be? <laughs> so we're going to China. We're going to China in the sort of early 90s. I was there because of my parents. I was a kid in elementary school. I didn't, I think this one, is, it's a difficult question because it didn't necessarily lead me to thinking I will work on HIV stigma, but it's definitely an experience that shaped me forever. So yeah, we're in China. I'm in second grade elementary school. So that's seven years old. And I have my favorite art teacher who is also Serbian like me. And she was really, really lovely and loving and creative. And I just adored, adored her classes. She would kind of like show up with a lot of like stationery and trinkets. And she called me her angel. And I absolutely adored her. My parents didn't really like her. And my parents often talked about her negatively, you know, she was spotted in a shop, um, looking disoriented and, and things like that. And I'd overhear these conversations. She was a, a, a drug user and I loved her, you know, and eventually she sort of just disappeared from my life. And I overheard through kind of parent conversations that she had HIV and eventually she, yeah, she soon passed away and I would overhear all sorts of conversations, like why was she allowed to work in a school? How could she have been allowed to be so close with the kids? I overheard concerned parents talking about how she would hug us and they were, yeah, they were really upset about it. And I think that whole situation really shook me and scared me because I had no idea what was going on. And yes, I had had physical contact with her. I, I don't know if, if people do that nowadays in elementary schools, but that, that was quite normal for me, I think, to be hugged by a teacher like her who was so loving and, and close to us. And so I was convinced that I had HIV until I spoke to my older sister who sort of explained to me the whole epidemiology of like HIV and that it's just a virus and how it transmits and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And she explained the stigma. And I think, yeah, very early on, I sort of understood that part of the reason why she, yeah, a large reason why she couldn't seek treatment on time was because of that judgment and and shame that she must have felt profoundly for both being a person who used drugs and for being a person living with hiv well that's yeah. so interesting and also that today there's still probably a lot of people with the misinformation about transmission around hiv and fear of i know in a lot of places i work people still have fear uh, young people I was living uh, young people living with HIV I was 
doing focus groups within Jamaica in January last year, uh, were saying that many of them were not allowed to use their family's cutlery. They do use different knives and forks. This is in 2020. <laughs> so there's still a lot of misinformation about transmission from, I don't know how old you are, but from when you're seven to now, we really haven't seemed to, to be able to you know, disentangle this misinformation and this fear. And so what a powerful story. So we would go to China. Wow. Okay. You know, I've never yeah. been trying out of the time machine. <laughs> so I want to ask you, it's 2021. Why should we all be caring about stigma? Does it still matter? Why does it still matter? A lot of things going on in the world, COVID-19, you know, a lot of things. Yeah. Why are we thinking about stigma? And not, you know, all kinds of stigma, but in your mind, what is the urgency yeah, I mean, it's absolutely urgent because different forms of stigma and discrimination have been making our lives miserable for as long as people have been around, I would say. And I think this is where I'm going to get maybe a little bit academic. I think what I've found in my research and review of different theories of stigma is that we've really missed a lot of opportunities historically to learn from different conditions and situations. So if we think about what's happening with COVID and we see that minorities and uh, groups of people that have been systematically disenfranchised <laughs> and disadvantaged are now being disproportionately affected in many ways, that is a direct impact of the stigma and discrimination that they've faced and in various forms, whether it's the type of work that you have access to, whether it's poverty related, where you live, what your living conditions are, those are all different forms of um, discrimination and exclusion. So it definitely matters. I think we can learn a lot from HIV. And I think the, the HIV world could have learned a lot from from other worlds. So Franz Fanon, back in the 50s, talked about, um, he was a psychiatrist from Martinique, and he, he talked very elaboratively, like really in, in detail about the effects of racism and discrimination and colonial rule on the human psyche and what that does to human health. And interestingly, he talked about it being really toxic for both the perpetrator and, and the person experiencing the stigma. And so, but we haven't really moved on a lot from that. So, so I think absolutely very relevant. We need to be thinking about it. We need to think about how so many questions with, really, with regards to COVID, you know, the racism that people experienced in the early days of the pandemic, uh, you know, people calling it the Chinese virus. What are the effects of that? People stigmatizing people for wearing masks, conflicting information that we've thrown upon young people, sort of blaming them for their behaviors without offering any form of protection. We really need to be thinking about what the long-term effects of that are going to be on, on people's mental health. And what are the effects on people's health-seeking behaviors as well? if people feel like they're going to be judged and we have really kind of like conclusive overwhelming amounts of evidence from from HIV on this if if people are ashamed or worried that they're going to be judged when accessing healthcare they're going to be less likely to access healthcare so stigma matters 
Okay, you've convinced me. So I want you to give the listeners some obviously anonymized examples, but what might stigma look like, you know, in a daily life from a moment someone wakes up to the time they go to sleep? What could be a way that it shows up in their life? Yeah, so I guess th there's a lot of examples that we've seen through research on HIV, and maybe I can also share some other examples that can be illustrated from other aspects of people's lives. So we have what we normally think of when we think of stigma is discrimination. So those are overt acts. I am treating you differently because of the way you look, because of who you are, because of where you live. And so that looks something like somebody coming to a clinic and the clinician saying, you know, you're being promiscuous and there's no point in me um, speaking to you or treating you, get out of my clinic. But most people now know that that's not an okay way to behave. So even those forms of overt discrimination sort of evolve over time. And people know and they find roundabout ways to treat you differently without seeming like they are. And I think most listeners will belong to some um, you know, we'll have some identity where they've been disadvantaged in a conversation, whether you're a woman, a person of color, a person living with a health condition or a disability. So discrimination that is sort of a, a bit more evolved can look like not looking at you in the eyes, people avoiding to look at you, people avoiding to say your name because they don't know how to pronounce it, um, people not really smiling at you. And so those are things that are often quite difficult to explain to somebody else who might not have experienced it. And those are also things that a person who stigmatizes or who does that unpleasant behavior towards you can easily kind of deny or gaslight you or say you misinterpreted it, but I, I would say 99.999% of the time, it's how you feel, how that made you feel, which makes the situation stigmatizing. Are those also called microaggressions? I've always been trying to figure out where the term microaggressions fits into the stigma world. Yeah, yeah. But discrimination can also look like things that we again, never ever think of as discrimination. So for example, or regular, you know, regularly we wouldn't have thought of it as discrimination. So something like going to a clinic that doesn't really speak to any of your needs, mm. that isn't sensitive to your needs, that's kind of at the structural or at the policy level. Mm -hmm. Something wasn't done right, people weren't thinking about you, and, and that is a form of discrimination. Yeah, so maybe forgetting that your clients might not all be heterosexual and cisgender and not even asking or assuming those things on intake forms or something like that as well. Yeah, or thinking that you can ask the same types of questions of a person from a certain country as you would of a person from your country or having staff who only speak one language who, haven't, who are not used to or haven't been trained to engage uh, with people from other cultures. Aside from, so the, there's that discrimination. And then a lot, a lot of my research has been on internalized stigma and shame. So that's, that's a totally different kind of manifestation. And that's shame that people, you know, a profound sense of shame that people internalize 
it happens when a person from a minority or a disadvantaged group internalizes and accepts negative attitudes as being true. So it would be like me internalizing um, that I'm weak because I'm a woman. And that's also really, it's, it's, it sucks. It's bad for our mental health. And then it can also affect how we um, engage with services, whether we engage with services, and then in the long term affect our, our physical health as well. In your work, what kind of, how do you see this coming up in people's lives? Is there anything you're working on now you wanted to share with the listeners around internalized stigma or anything recently that you've, you've been like, wow, I can't believe, you know, that, that we're not looking at this more, anything we should be thinking about? Yeah. So, okay. So internalized stigma, there seems to be like a whole debate. A lot of people think, well, that's something within, you know, there are people who have never experienced discrimination who still internalize, you know, maybe nobody ever told me I was weak because I'm a woman, but I've still internalized that. So that's a sort of character trait. That's something that's something that I hold within myself. And that's a sort of personality issue. Um, but what, what, what I found in, in my research is that really external experiences, so how people treat you, really shapes that sense of shame. And so the issue is that we, it's not always that apparent because, as we said before, discrimination doesn't always happen in a very apparent, you know, glossy packaged way. It evolves and people know to be careful how they discriminate against you, if that makes sense. So when it comes to HIV, for example, people typically develop ideas around HIV before their diagnosis even. They'll have certain perceptions and they might come from media they might come from conversations of people saying quite negative things and so upon diagnosis they can experience internalized stigma even though they weren't necessarily even though they hadn't told anyone about their HIV status and they hadn't personally been attacked mm. they'd still been subjected to these really negative ideas around HIV for most of their life so that's one thing. And another thing is that, uh, you know, people experience all other forms of maltreatment, like abuse and bullying. And so in, in our research with adolescents living with HIV in, in South Africa, we've seen that all of these, so abuse within the household that's not necessarily HIV specific, can be, but isn't always, bullying from peers in addition to discrimination in the community and discrimination in healthcare settings all of these together fuel this sense of shame and then that shame is really bad for mental health um, it increases likelihood of depression but it also profoundly affects people's um, access to care. So young people who experience all of this discrimination and maltreatment and exclusion, who then internalize the shame, are way less likely to access services. They're less likely to adhere to their medication. They're less likely to uh, regularly come to their clinic appointments for fear of being identified and subjected to, to, to more discrimination. That's so interesting because sometimes I'm worried with internalized stigma that there's some sort of blaming put on somebody for accepting stigma. But what you're saying is not only is it 
produced through their own experiences of, of being stigmatized against, whether or not those are more subtle or overt kinds. But you're saying that they've also grown up in a world, like swimming in a world of stigma. So it's not surprising that if you grow up seeing media images and hearing your family, friends, community members talk about a health issue or a, a social identity in a particular way that you maybe haven't experienced when, when you do get a diagnosis or, you know, if it's around like LGBT issues, realize, oh, maybe I'm part of this, <laughs> this community, mm-hmm. then, that, then all of that kind of internalized stigma is there because you've, you've kind of grown up with that. That's so interesting. My question, my next question is, what can we do about it? What's the solution? I want to hear all things we can do about it from the, the macro level to the person walking their dog. How can we right. how can we address this? Um, radical kindness. Tell me so about all, tell me about radical kindness. I think always, always, always assume you you never know. So if we're talking specifically about HIV here, but I think that that just applies to like any sort of identity, you know, ethnicity, gender, etc. Ne- never, and w- what I wanted to say, but always assume, always assume that somebody might be in the room and never assume who that somebody is. So speak always with kindness and respect for people in all our beautiful diversity. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I want to talk to you more about this because... I teach in social work and I always tell students write case notes as if you can share them with your clients. Assume that somebody in this room is a person who's doing sex work. Someone in this room is a person with mental health issues. Someone in this room is a person who uses drugs. Like, like there's no necessarily us and them. Like, I really love that you just said that. When you're talking about a group or a person, imagine that they are sitting beside you. How would you then talk? I love that. I did not know that was called radical kindness. I didn't know there was a term for that. I like this. <laughs> so that, so we don't have any trials testing this out. This is something that I'm concluding based on what we're seeing, how like internalized stigma and shame, discrimination, how they function and operate in society. I think it's going to make you feel better and others around you feel better. (laughs) In terms of what works. So I think in, so this is something that, for example, COVID, we could look, when you ask about, you know, what is the relevance of all of this for like the current situation? I think um, with the current pandemic and crisis, there's lots that we can learn from mistakes from our HIV work. And we've all had the best of intentions and we've all, of course, made mistakes in our HIV work. So I think one big assumption that we've operated with is that the main driver of stigma and discrimination is ignorance. Hmm. And so what that's meant is that the vast majority of interventions that we have to address stigma and discrimination will focus on raising awareness Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely like a really, really, really important part, but that's not the kind of, what is it called? Magic bullet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not the sole reason or necessarily the main reason why a lot of people discriminate or why a lot of people then also internalize stigma. So do people discriminate 
because they don't know any better or do they discriminate to assert their power over others? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm convinced from, from the research that we've done and the systematic reviews that I've done and or read that people discriminate as a way of asserting power over others because discrimination and stigma flourish in places where we have high levels of and situations where we have uh, very unequal relationships and very unequal um, societies. And so consciously or unconsciously, a lot of the time people discriminate or treat people differently in order to maintain or preserve that status quo. That reminds me of conversations I've had on this podcast and also in, in now in my classes and in some readings on the epistemologies of ignorance. And so ignorance is not innocent. Ignorance is ways that reproduce power and equities. So when we say, oh, people are just ignorant, well, actually, ignorance isn't just a lack of information. It's a lack of information that keeps reproducing who do we know about and who do we not know about. So if we don't know about information about HIV as a HIV negative person, it's our duty to go and get that information. If um, you're a heterosexual person and you don't know about LGBTQ issues, it's on you to go and learn about that. If you're a cisgender person, you don't know about trans issues, it's on you to go and learn about that. So it's yeah. there's this lack of, once you are aware that a health issue or a community that you are not part of um, exists and experiences inequities, it's, it's not enough to say, well, I just didn't know. Well, you know, in 2021, every every country or most around the world, and we work in a lot of different places, a lot of different places in the world, has some access to the internet. And so we could do that self-learning, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, I really think it, there's a connection between what you said, where there's a real focus on raising awareness, but maybe that needs to go a step further and say, well, why don't you have the awareness in the first place? Um, right. Producing the media that you're consuming. Why are you, con you know, if you're a white person and you don't know about racism, that's on you to go and learn about it, right? It's 2021. Mm -hmm. You need to start reading stuff on racism, on white privilege, and on reading stuff by people of color, writing about racism and white privilege too. So I think there's something on us about learning about, and, and part of like listening to this podcast, for instance, and uh, Dr. Lisa Bolake was on a podcast and she talked about the intersectional epistemologies of ignorance and how, mm. and it's, it's not an innocent situation to not know about an entire community of people or group of people or health issue. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. And then that is just like the surface layer. That is just almost kind of like the most emergency intervention, you know, really learning that that's like the most urgent basic intervention that on its own won't be enough. Mm -hmm. So we need to really tackle ignorance and not assume that it's innocent. But even that, which seems like a huge piece of work in terms of where we are currently, mm. that's just like a very, very initial starting point. And what really needs to happen is that we need to address the power inequities and inequalities. Mm -hmm. So... And that's the really, really challenging part. 
So for example, um, in terms of, we, we recently did a systematic review of trying to understand what works to address internalized stigma. So the shame that we were talking about. And well, first of all, we found that a quarter of the interventions um, that uh, were tried and documented in evaluation of this, uh, a quarter were ineffective. Hmm. which suggests that a lot of the common sense stuff that we try and we don't even test the outcome is, is probably going to be ineffective. And we, so we have to be really critical. Stigma is so complicated and so entrenched in society that we've got to really, you know, if it was easy to address, we would have solved it by now. Hmm. We haven't solved it by now. So we have to be really critical when we design interventions and really um, humble when evaluate, you know, investing in evaluations. So a quarter of them were ineffective. But the interventions that worked were those that um, were really designed and led by the community that was supposed to benefit from it. So that's what we, you know, I would call that had an empowerment approach. And obviously, something like that can't address all the inequities, you know, and in, in decades and centuries of uh, systematic oppression. But it, it does something to, to empower communities and to reduce maybe that power inequality between the oppressor and, and that community. So the interventions that were designed, so not just delivered, a lot of our interventions in HIV will be delivered by the community, but the key is for them to, you know, for people to really design and, and play a key role in imagining uh, and devising this intervention. All of the ones that were communities designed the interventions resulted in substantial reductions wow, in internalized that's, stigma. That's awesome. Um, and other things that were really helpful were economic empowerment. So that's, again, a way of like uplifting the community and addressing those power inequalities. Yeah, so economic empowerment, I guess, social empowerment um, and, and really having communities lead and be at the center. Interventions uh, that were just about knowledge base, or, or I like to call it kind of like talking at people. Because if I if I think about you know th things that have really hurt me in my life, if somebody just comes to me and, and tells me that I shouldn't be hurt by it, it's not necessarily <laughs> going to make me feel better. But so yeah, interventions that were that are mostly about that that relied only on that, you know, only on the knowledge or addressing the ignorance, for example, they weren't effective. And it didn't matter whether the people who delivered the talking were peers or not peers. So we have to be quite critical when we think about what does it mean? What does community engagement mean? You know, is it just kind of like doling out, giving somebody like, this is what your intervention will be? Or is it actually um, working with communities and, and having them design what they will eventually hopefully benefit from? So, so those were sort of like the key learnings. And I, I think maybe I'll just focus on that for internalized stigma because you've had so many other talks about discrimination and that's, so we know a lot more about that stuff. But I'll give you an example, okay. if I can, sure. of an intervention that like really inspired me. And then I, I, I also visited um, this organization and, and saw the work that they do and, and it's amazing. So. It's from the Durbar Sex Worker Collective, 
uh, in India, and they're, they are from Sonagachi, which is India's largest red light district. Mm -hmm. And they do amazing um, work at every level, really kind of like a, a gold standard dream world of, of what um, all of our countries should look like in many ways in terms of meaningful and empowering sex worker projects. So they have this intervention that was specifically for like addressing internalized stigma and shame. Because they found that a lot of their projects that they have amazing, you know, um, community health services, they have a cooperative bank run by and for sex workers with a massive annual turnover, they have projects run by and for children of sex workers, so they have really comprehensive, great community services. But they found that the obstacle to many people uptaking these services was the shame and the stigma, internalized stigma. So they devised these dream building sessions and, and they're quite holistic, but they're led, they were designed by and are led by sex workers in, in sex worker only spaces. And these sessions cover so much. So they talk about, you know, the police brutality and the violence and so on, but they also talk about solutions. They also have financial literacy in that, but that financial literacy, of course, is not just financial literacy because it's embedded in a project that, you know, they, they do have a sex worker run bank with favorable um, interest rates for both savings and loans. So... So just remember that it's not it's not sort of like financial literacy without kind of like a, a structure to to back up and, and help people actually make use of that literacy. And they, they have a session that's run by a child of a sex worker that focuses on parenting because most of these women have children and see themselves as mothers first. So it's very kind of comprehensive. So there's a whole curriculum and, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but, it, but it's great. One thing that they don't discuss is like accessing health services mm -hmm. because that just wasn't something that was kind of like on the priority list, I guess, when the, when the whole sessions were being designed and it's, it's not something that they discuss. And they've done um, cluster randomized trials of this which means that they, they would randomize by brothel or by house where, where the sex workers live. And they found that in comparison to sex workers who didn't get this intervention, sex workers who did have the intervention had substantial reductions in sex worker-related shame. So they stopped seeing themselves as quote-unquote fallen women and saw sex work as, as just work. And there were also substantial improvements in health-seeking behaviors in comparison to the control group, even though nobody ever talked about health-seeking behaviors. One big component that I missed out that they, that they do focus on is collective identity and opportunities for mobilization and how they, you know, fighting for your rights and demanding your rights and what your rights are. So I really like this intervention, but I also love the study because it, it, it kind of tells us so much about <laughs> stigma and like other things that, you know, how all these issues around healthcare access and the ways in which we're treated and our human rights and our financial situation and parenthood are all interconnected. I think it's a real kind of like 
golden example of, of what we call the socio-ecological model of, of health behaviors. And, and I think it, it highlights also for us, I think we have a lot to learn because we so much of the time when we want, you know, to improve people's health, then we just talk about how do you how do you go to a clinic how do you access the service mm. when there's so many other issues that matter to people and, and maybe if we talked about all these other things naturally we'd find it easier to go to the clinic i love that i love it so we have three minutes left for doing some wild cards i don't know if you know about that but no. just before we get into wild cards radical kindness uh community empowerment listening and letting communities develop and design interventions. I love it. This is amazing. Okay. All right. We're going to do some wild cards. We're going to get to know the real Maria. Okay. okay. Number one, what are you binging on Netflix? Oh my God. <laughs> so embarrassed. Like I just finished the crown. The crown. I have not seen that. Is it good? It is. It, I, I'm learning a lot about, uh, about yeah stuff that i didn't know about even though i've been in the uk for a very long time so okay yeah. <laughs> i'll consider that one then the final question for the listeners has there been any advice or wisdom that you've received along the way that has been helpful that you want to share in life yeah i think being a kind generous person really I think is something that I've probably known all my life but has become really so acutely apparent in, in this pandemic and it's one of the only things we can control you know when everything goes kind of wild and outside of your control we can still control who we are and if we're just honest and kind I think the the rewards are immense so yeah Desmond Tutu talks about, you know, being, you can, you can be, uh, humans are selfish. Everyone is selfish and you can be stupid selfish or you can be smart selfish and stupid selfish is, you know, just taking everything for yourself, but smart selfish is being kind to others. And it's selfish because we get the rewards both through sort of endorphins and, and just good feel good hormones, but also through, you know, enhanced connection to humanity and, and friendships and love. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that you're leaving us with Desmond Tutu. This is so awesome. You are amazing. I am so thankful for you coming and sharing. You've given me so much to think about. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. And I can't wait till I can travel again and meet you in Brighton or one of the AIDS conferences, wherever the next one in person will be. Um, yeah, and, and hug. Yeah, yes, right? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Yes.